Good morning. Welcome out to Vail. My name is Ted Max. I serve on staff here as lead pastor. We are glad you are spending a little part of your weekend with us. If you're in the room, could you help me out by welcoming those that are joining us online today? We're glad you're with us wherever you're tuning in from. Thanks for being here. Um, we are starting a brand new series today, and um, I, I knew the moment that we picked the title for the series, people were going to be like, really? I don't, mm, I don't know how I feel about that. Um, but I want to give some context of why we came up with it. Um, it actually came out of the idea that we were teaching into Easter which is the Passover, like it's, that's when Jesus was crucified, was actually at, at a party. You see, the Jewish people would, would celebrate these festivals seven times a year, and it was actually usually a very joyous occasion. They would come together with friends and family, um, they, would, they would party together, and they would you know, have these celebrations. Well, unfortunately, in Jesus' time, in the year of his crucifixion, um, that party went really bad really fast, and we recognized that after the crucifixion, there was this massive letdown. The disciples were distraught, they were scattered, they were, they were kind of split apart, and, and it was almost just this like hangover from the party. It was like there was this, this dark cloud that weighed down upon everything in the region, in the area, in the disciples, and in the Jewish people. And so we said, you know, what would it look like for us to go through, and over the next couple of weeks, we're going to take some characters and some people that basically had a really rough time after the crucifixion. They had some... They had some things they had to overcome, some things they had to kind of, kind of walk through that actually ultimately helped their faith. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to take a look at the subject of doubt, that, that there's some spaces and places where we're going to have doubts, that we're going to struggle. And I want you to kind of just hear this on the outset, that is okay. That is normal. Doubt is a normal part of life, and so I want to give you that context today. But in order to do it, I'm going to take you back to the story that we started with last week at Easter, just because some of you may not have been here, and so I want you to have the context of what we're talking about. And so I'm going to read from Luke chapter 24 today. It's a retelling of the resurrection story through Luke's writing, and so that's where we're going to be, and then we're going to kind of go into this area of doubt together. And so let me read for you what it says in Luke 24. It says this, but on the first day of the week, at early dawn... They went to the tomb. So this is like the morning after Sabbath. They're coming out to basically serve Jesus' body that has basically been placed in the grave. But it says this. It says they took the spices that they had prepared and they found the stone was rolled away. And so the tomb now is empty and they, they went in. They did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. We assume that those are angels because we find out in another account that the angels are still there waiting at the tomb, the empty tomb. It says this, and as they were frightened and they bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but he has risen. Say risen. Well, maybe I can. Here we go. Risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee. Now here's this, this moment where they have this encounter and these guys are like, hey, um, he, he's not here. Only dead people are here. Um, he's risen. He's alive. And, and if you remember, Jesus told you this. Like he told you when he was in Galilee that this is what was gonna happen. And so they use this word, igiro, which means to waken, to rouse from the dead. They say he's alive. And, and, and still, a lot of the people that were around Jesus didn't understand. In fact, I'm gonna go one step further to say, I don't know if it was understanding as much as it was doubt. They just never heard of it before. Like, like who rises from the dead? Who awakens from the dead? I just, we don't get it. We're not sure we believe it. And it's one thing to hear it, like Jesus told them, they, they, they maybe had a, a cognitive understanding. They, they may have thought about it, but did they believe it? And there's a difference between belief and just hearing something and thinking it could be true. And this is where the gap was. They just didn't know if they could truly believe. Could they truly trust what Jesus said? 
I've always loved what it says in Corinthians because I think it's important for us to get this. You see, there was an understanding piece here. Here's what it says in Corinthians. Paul says this, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. He says, if he wasn't raised from the dead, then basically your faith is pointless and you're still in your sins. You never made it out of it. You never, you never survived from it. You just, you, you just aren't gonna be free from it unless he actually is alive. And there were these doubts of could, could he really do this? Could he be alive? I just don't know if I trust it. And here's what I wanna get to. Here's the point. And it's found in 1 Peter. 1 Peter says it really well, I think. He says this. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. In fact, would you say that with me? Say living hope. He says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, he says that actually the hope that we have is supposed to be one in the way that we live our life. It's supposed to be a hope that's lived out. And here's what I kind of want to say. I think this is just really true. I think that the degree, all right, the degree to which we believe will determine the degree to which we live out our faith. I just think that that is true. In fact, I want you to think about that for a second. I think the degree of your belief, the amount that you believe it, will determine how you live it. And this is from, oh gosh, 20 some odd years of being in ministry, but more than that, 43 years of being on the planet and being involved in church for most of my life, I've identified that there are really three different types of believers. All right, three. And if you're in this room and you're a Christian, then you're gonna find yourself in one of these categories. Um, if you're not a Christian, then there, our hope is that someday you'll come to that belief and you'll join this, but, but everyone lands in one of three categories, and I wanna give them to you because that's really where we're gonna start our discussion today. Um, and it starts really at the beginning. I'd say that the first kind of believer is a casual believer, very casual in their relationship with God, and there's a couple reasons for it. Um, it usually finds its way in the people that were just raised in it. Like, I was raised in the church, and so I go to church. Church is just what I do. It's the, it's the thing I do. Right? As we become older and we have kids, there's a lot of parents that will leave church for a season, usually around college, then they'll come back after they have kids because they say, well, I grew up in the church, I want my kids to have that opportunity. So we're gonna go back to church so my kids can have the experience that I had growing up so they can make that choice. And then there's the Christians that basically say, hey, um, I just want fire insurance. Like, I don't really want this to change my life too much, but what if it's real? Like, what if there's a heaven and what if there's a hell? Then I'll come to church in the hopes that if I die and I wake up in eternity, that I can at least look at God and say, well, I went to church, right? I believed for the most part, and it's a casual faith. The second one I find is um, not casual, but a convenient faith. It's a convenient one, and the convenient one usually means that there's not a better option, right? If there isn't a football game on, I'll go to church. Uh, if there isn't F1 on, I'll, I'll go to church. Like, if there isn't really nice weather and a golf course that's calling my name, you know, I'll plug in and I'll do the relational thing with God, right? Or it comes down to the Bible, I meet a lot of people that like, like they, they love certain parts of the Bible, right? I love the fact that God forgives, it's so good, so good, right? I love his grace, I, lo I love his mercy, I love it. But then when you get in and you like read about his wrath, you're like, ooh, I don't like that God, yeah. There's some guidelines and rules that he has for my life, ooh, I don't know if I like those. You know, and what we do is we cherry pick the Bible. We're like, hey, this is the God that I like, but this one that tells me I can't do that, mm, not so much, right? So what we'll do is we'll basically build our faith around the God that we want him to be, and we will have this kind of casual interaction that becomes this convenient interaction of as long as it doesn't cost me anything, God, I will follow you, right? Like, like I don't know if I wanna serve, I don't know if I wanna give financially, I don't know if I wanna attend regularly, I, I don't know if I wanna do the things that your Bible's telling me, I don't know if I wanna obey. So when it's convenient, God, you and I will be fine. And then the third one is what I would say is the committed group. 
It's the group that actually says, hey, listen, if Jesus really lived, if Jesus really died, and Jesus really lived again, then that changes everything. Then it changes absolutely everything. It means that everything else in my life becomes secondary to that truth because if that happened and my life and belief determines my eternity, then maybe, just maybe, I should take it seriously. Maybe when he says it, I should do it. Maybe when he says this is the plan, I should follow it. Maybe when he says there's some things in my life that I shouldn't have in my life, I should get those out of my life because God who loves me, who created me, knows me better than I know me and maybe his plans are better than my plans and so I'm in, I'm committed. And here's what I've determined is that the more you believe, the more you will live out that belief. And so this is what I wanna talk about is how do we find our way to a committed belief? How do we get there? And so in order to do it, I wanna take you to the story that I didn't finish last week in the Bible. And so I'm gonna read, read for you out of John chapter 20. We're gonna pick up this story of when Jesus encounters his disciples after the resurrection. But there's one encounter with one disciple that I left out last week we're gonna talk about this week. And so let me read for you what happens in John chapter 20. It says this. It says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. So remember, the disciples are terrified. Jesus is missing from the tomb. The tomb has been opened. The Romans have fled. They've got a woman who said, I've seen Jesus at this point, but nobody else has. And so they go to a secret meeting, lock themselves in a room, and it says this happens. It says, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. So Jesus shows up in this room, this locked room. He appears, walks through the wall, right? Just all of a sudden is in the room, says, chill out, I'm fine, I'm here, everything's okay. Look at my hands, look at my side. These are the wounds that were put on me on the cross. See and believe. He invites them to encounter him, see him, then believe in him. Now, one of the things I've always loved about this thing where he shows him his hands and his side, like, I don't, did he need to do that? Right? Like, they've seen Jesus, they've been with him for years. It's not like they were like, man, you've changed so much since the crucifixion like three days ago. Like, like, he still looks the same, but there's something about the marks in his hands and his side that are really important. In fact, so much so that I don't know if you know this, but in Revelation, it says that when we get to heaven someday, we are all gonna get new bodies. How many people are excited about a new body? Anybody? Come on. Older you get, the more your hand goes up, right? Like, and, and I, you know what's funny is like, like, I've always thought about that. Like, I can't wait to get a new body. I wanna be tall, dark, handsome, buff. Like, I've got plans. And even if I'm not, right, it'll be okay because I'll be with Jesus. It'll be all right. But what I've always found interesting, did you know that in Revelation, it says that you will have new bodies. We will have no blemishes, no scars. None of the things from this earth or life will go with us. But Jesus, Jesus will remain and retain his scars. He'll be the only scars in heaven will belong to Jesus. And the reason he will have them is because even in heaven, there'll be this reminder that he wants to keep on him that says, listen, my love ran red on the cross for you. I loved you enough to die for you, and he will have the only scars in heaven. It's just kind of a big deal. It's something that matters. And so he shows that to his disciples. You see, I think what happens, though, is that we find these moments that the path to commitment always starts with doubts. You see, the disciples doubted. I need that to be really, really clear. They doubted. They, they weren't at the moment that Jesus walked out of the grave, even though Jesus told them he was going to do it. They went and hid because they had doubts. And Jesus says, don't have doubts. Instead, believe. But one disciple kind of gets probably the hardest time of all, right? And some of you know who he is because we use the language. We have a, a term for him, and we use that term even in today's language. And I want to show you who that disciple is. It's actually found in verse 24 of John chapter 20. It says this. Now, Thomas. Say, Thomas. <laughs> poor, poor Thomas. Um, it says, now Thomas, one of the 12 called the twin was not with them when Jesus came. Now, I've always wondered like why, like when I get to heaven, I want to ask like Thomas, like, dude, what were you doing? 
Like everybody else gathered, they like called the disciples together. Like, like they just like, everyone needs to gather. And Thomas was like, nah, I'm not gonna go. And I wonder if he had like some more fears maybe because like, why would you all gather if they're looking for the disciples? It seems like it'd be better to just scatter and then no one finds us, right? Should we all hide in different places? It seems like a better plan. But they've all gathered, Thomas wasn't there. And it says this, it says, so the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. Now, just stop here, go with me for a second. Most everybody in here, you've got a group of friends you trust, right? You've got somebody you say, well, I trust them, right? I've got some close friends, like I trust them with my kids. You know, I trust them with my wallet. Like, like I trust them. And you would think that it'd be enough for people that you trust to look you in the eyes and say, I have seen Jesus, right? You can trust me on this. And you'd think they'd go, well, I mean, I trust you. Like, I have no reason not to trust you. If you've seen Jesus, I'll trust that it happened. But I love what Thomas does here. Thomas just kind of responds in his own way. He's like, mm, thanks for sharing your point of view. Thanks for sharing your truth. Here's what he says. He says, but he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and I place my finger into the mark of the nails and I place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Say never. He's like, I don't care what you say. I don't care what you do. I will never believe until I actually touch the wounds myself and I see him. Like, you wanna talk about like a journey of faith that this guy's on. He's like, hey, I don't care what you've seen. Until I see, I won't believe. And I think there's so many people that, that we're all different. Have you recognized that? Like, we're very different. I have met people that went to church one time, heard the gospel, and they're like, I'm in. This sounds amazing. Like, Jesus died for me. How do I get saved? And I'm like, that's a spectacular. You just responded like that? It was that simple for you? And others, it's a long, long journey. Like, and there's people that are wired differently. Like, some of you know who you are. Like, when a TV breaks in your house, um, you can go buy a new one, but you don't. You take it apart and try to fix it because there's just something inside you that says, I wanna know how this works, right? I like to take things apart. I like to put them back together. I wanna understand them. That's the way Thomas was. Thomas said, hey, listen, I, I wanna believe, but the only way I'm gonna believe is if I see, and, and, and I think that maybe I was a little bit that way. I grew up in church, and, and I believe that there was a God, but I, I don't know if I really understood. Did I believe him in my heart, in my life, or did I believe him in my head? And there's a difference. You know, like you can believe something to be true, but not actually live as if it's true, right? I, I said this the other night when we were doing the Rooted Celebration. I made a comment that, you know, it's one thing to believe that Jesus lived and Jesus died and Jesus rose again and that he is the son of God. It's one thing to believe that. You know, the devil believes that. The devil believes that Jesus is the son of God. He believes that he lived, that he died, and then he knows that he rose again. He believes in God, but he doesn't have a relationship with him. And there's a difference between knowing in your head and knowing in your heart. And there's this moment where I think that some of us, we have to see something to move us in that journey of head to heart. I, I, for me, it was being on a missions trip. I went on a missions trip because there's a really good looking girl that was on the trip, that's why I went on the trip. Um, and we were down in Mexico and it was the end of a, a trip and I remember watching a 13 year old girl pray over a blind man at the service. And all of a sudden, this, this blind man was in a wheelchair, and he was in a wheelchair not because he couldn't walk, he was in a wheelchair because there in Baja, there was no streets and things that he could use to tap out his direction, so people had to take him everywhere he went in this old, kind of just messy wheelchair that he basically lived in. And in the middle of this service, as this 13-year-old girl's praying over this, this, this young man who's been blind since birth, all of a sudden, the place erupts because the guy stands to his feet, he begins to shout something out in Spanish, and the translator translates, and what he was saying was is that as this girl was praying for him, he stood to his feet and he began to say, I can see, I can see, I can see. And the very first time he moved from no sight to being able to see clearly for the first time. And it was in that moment for me that it took seeing that, that I got on my knees right there in that moment and there was a move for me from my head to my heart of belief that there's a God and not only is he a God, but he's a God who's very near. 
He's not a distant God. And there's sometimes those moments that you need to see something to believe. Some of you are wired that way. Some of you are not. But Thomas was wired that way. He said, I need to see. He says, I'm going to need some discoveries that are going to lead me to a belief. And so here's what happens. I love this. It says this. It says, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Now, now if you're Thomas, you probably stuck around with the disciples this time. They've all said they've seen Jesus. So anywhere they go, Thomas was probably going. Like, I'm going to go just to see what happens. But eight days goes by. And here's what it says. It says that although the doors were locked, I've always thought this is funny, right? Like, you imagine if you come to church and we lock the doors, right? No one gets in, no one gets out. You better brought snacks. It could go long. Like, you just don't know. But they locked the doors again. I think there was a purpose in it. But here's what it says. It says, then Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. So like Jesus does the exact same thing. It's like, I, I just wonder if there's like some planning. I don't know if there was, but like part of me just wants to be like, Jesus like showed up to Peter like in secret, like, hey, Thomas, make sure he's with you tomorrow night. Lock the doors, right? We're gonna do it again. I'm just gonna show up. I'm gonna give him the whole experience. I don't want him to miss anything. And so Jesus does the exact same thing. He appears in the room. He says, peace be with you. And then he says this. He says to Thomas, like he calls Thomas out. Like it's like he just knows he knows what Thomas is thinking. He knows where Thomas is at. And here's what he says. Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. He says, take the journey. Take the journey. You know what I've always loved about this um, story is that Jesus doesn't call Thomas doubting Thomas, right? The Bible translators do. We do. In fact, we still use that language. I, I, I can't tell you many times in my life I've heard someone like, like say to someone who's struggling with like believing something, they'll call him, oh, don't be a doubting Thomas. It's like, like poor Thomas. Like we're gonna get to heaven someday. You're gonna meet him. And you're like, oh, you're doubting Thomas. And he's gonna be like, really? <laughs> Everyone says it and it's not fair. It's rude. You know, like he's gonna have a moment where he's not gonna like it. I promise you. But Jesus doesn't call him that. Jesus can handle his doubts. Jesus doesn't go, shame on you, Thomas. How dare you? He doesn't do that. Instead, what he does, he walks right in and says, I know you got fears. I know you got doubts. It's okay. Place your hands in my hand. Touch my side. See and believe. He says, do the journey. Do the work. It leads to belief. He says that these discoveries lead to belief. Did you know that that's what God still wants us to do? God's desire is that we would still do that. I want to show you the response that Thomas had to Jesus. As soon as he does this, as soon as he gets to poke around literally on the Son of God, he has this moment where all of a sudden something clicks for him and he just simply says this, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. He said, you are who you say you are. I know that, that my friends had seen you, but I hadn't seen you. Now that I've seen you, my belief is intact. My belief is full. You see, I've, I've always kind of found it just, to me, just really just beautiful. Um, I, I remember when I was in school, I remember there's this kind of been movement going on in our, our culture over really the last 80 to 100 years. It's been a little bit longer than that. It's been more like around the 200-year mark. But um, there's been this move and this belief in our culture that as we as humans become more educated, as we become more enlightened, our need for God will disappear. There's a whole teaching out there that says, hey, listen, the further we go into the sciences, the more we're going to discover there is no God. We're going to find out that we are God. And, and we won't need him anymore. And so we'll, we'll put away the dogma. We'll put away the stigma. We can take all this old, ancient writings and we can throw them away because we can finally be enlightened to the fact that, that we don't need a God. And you know what I've loved is that over the last several hundred years, we keep going further into science. We keep going further into philosophy. We keep going further into history. We started using archaeology to dig up and expose things, to find truth. And you know what I've always just found really fascinating is the further that you look to disprove God, the more that God reveals himself through creation. 
It's like God planned for us to go and look, and if we look, we find him. It's like it says that in the Bible. It says, if you seek him, you will find him. And we've got all these people that are trying to do it. In fact, I don't know if you know anything about archaeology, but you know over the last 200 years, the, the modern archaeology has really just taken off. Like, it's relatively new. Like, you could go back to the 15th, 16th century where they started digging things up, but it's really only the last 200 years that they've actually put a science around it. Like, how do we identify the age of something? How do we understand what happened to it? How do we, how do we discover it? And so um, I want to just show you from one point of view. One of the things that God has placed, that he's placed his fingerprints all over the world, and I'm gonna look at it just through archaeology, just for a minute, just for a few minutes. Uh, There's a gentleman by the name of Nelson Gluck that said this. He said, no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference period. And he makes this statement. That's kind of a big statement because there's been a whole bunch of people that said, hey, listen, um, there's this thing about the Bible. The Bible we claim is true. Like we claim that this book is true. Now here's what the people who are really anti the Bible, here's what they said. Well, if you claim that all of it's true, all we have to do is identify one thing that isn't true. And if I can identify one thing that isn't true, then you can throw the rest of it away because it has no value. Right, that's been a big theme. And so did you know there's a bunch of characters that are only mentioned in the Bible and we can't find them in history? And so a bunch of historians have come along and said these are made up stories. They're made up characters. King David never really existed. You can't prove it, he's only in the Bible. Um, Pilate doesn't exist, he, he, he only exists in the Bible. Um, how about some of the ancient kings of Israel? Like they're listed all out. Like Bible's really clear about who was here, who was leading during this time. So I'm gonna just show you a couple of things that I found really, really interesting. Let me just give you a couple. Uh, This thing right here is uh, an Assyrian obelisk that they dug up out in the desert. It's from the Assyrian people. Well, as they dug it up and they started translating it, looking at the pictures on the side of it, they actually found a mention of 855 BC of a king of Israel by the name of Jehu, J-E-H-U. And King Jehu is listed in the Bible, and guess what? The timeline in which he lived is exactly listed in the Bible. They found an obelisk that the Assyrian people had made for their king that lists the time that Jehu came and brought an offering to their king. They said, well, looks like Jehu existed in 855 BC. Interesting. How about this one? Um, I've always found this one fascinating. They said that Pilate's name doesn't exist anywhere other than a couple random manuscripts in history. The Bible is the only one that tells the story of Pilate who put Jesus to death, right? Pilate was made up. Well, as they were digging around in Israel, a place called Caesarea Maritime, 1961, they found a palace, this beautiful palace that you can actually still visit today. It's beautiful. The floor is still intact. There's still tile work. You can actually see the, the creation and designs on the floor. And you go in, and at the very front of this place, when they dug about six feet of dirt off of it, they found this inscription. And you can barely read it here, but if you look really close, it actually has Pontius Pilate, Tiberius the emperor, and it has the dates and times and when Pilate was living in this palace because it was erected for him. And guess what? The dates line up with the Bible exactly. It says this guy not only existed, but here's the palace he lived in when he was the prefect over Judea. Here's another one. I've always thought this was beautiful. Peter's house. They were like, well, how do we know Peter lived where he said he did? Well, in the Bible, it says he had a really house where his family lived in Capernaum. So they dug up Capernaum, and guess what they found? They found Peter's house. They found the place where Jesus actually slept for a couple years when he was bumming and hanging out with Peter. He was here, and the early church took time to actually write the story inside Peter's home so that they could remember the place that Peter lived because he was a big figure in the church. How about this one? This one's always been interesting. Caiaphas, the guy that actually stood over Jesus' trial. They're like, we don't know if Caiaphas ever existed. Well, they were digging around in some of the graves, and guess what they found? They found the ossuary, the spot where he was buried. His bones were placed in this, and his name written on the side, Caiaphas, high priest. They're like, well, I guess he exists. Like, the list just goes on and on. This one was really fascinating. They said, David doesn't exist until they dug up this, this stele, which basically a history 
And there it mentions the house of David. It says that not only did it exist, but it has some of his story and some of his history from another culture's point of view. It says, nope, David existed. The house of David existed. And each time they say, well, can we trust the Bible? Can we trust the Bible? Let's find an error in it. This one has been the most fascinating one recently. This has been the last two years. Um, how many people know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? You ever heard of Sodom and Gomorrah? Anybody? All right, I'll give it to you real quick. Old Testament story. Two cities turned their back on God. They've gotten really, really bad. They've done a whole bunch of horrible things. And God said, I'm going to destroy these cities. And so their, their story basically unfolds that God finally says enough's enough. And he destroys them with fire. Like fire comes down out of heaven. Now, here's why this one's an interesting one for archaeologists. In the Bible, it actually says where the city was. And so some archaeologists said, let's go out and dig in the desert. So they went north of the Dead Sea and they started digging. And guess what they found? They found an entire civilization, exactly where the Bible said it would be. And so then they started looking at it really close. You know what they found? They found a bunch of melted clay and they found all of this heat and basically uh, wood and all these structures that had been destroyed with high, high levels of heat. They said it's a cataclysmic event. He said it basically looks like a volcano erupted and came into this small town. The problem is there's no volcanic um, activity anywhere in the region, anywhere in the area, and there's no history that there ever was. It's this one spot was superheated to a level they can't even imagine. Here's what they've come up with. They said scientists have figured out that what happened to this city in 1700 BC was comets fell from the sky and rained down fire upon this one location in the Dead Sea area just north. And they said the place that Sodom is listed, this place was destroyed by fire and fire from the sky. And the Bible says, yeah, that's what I said. And they just found this in the recent years. This is literally being written in articles. And then here's my favorite one, last one. I've been to this place a whole bunch of times. Uh, this is Bethesda. This is the pool that's listed in the Bible where Jesus did some miracles, uh, a place that he would come regularly. And so early in the 1800s, 1888, they dug up the first pool here and they found two colonnades, basically two porticos, two areas that were sheltered when they dug this up. Now, this is right in the middle of a very ancient neighborhood. In fact, you'll notice there are houses. This is people's ancestral homes right here, ancestral homes right here, and the church is right about where I'm standing in this picture. But all of these homes belong to people for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, and slowly but surely, Israel's been coming in and digging in a little bit further. And what happened in 1888 is they found this pool and they found two colonnades, and professors started teaching their students that they could abandon their faith and they could throw out their Bibles. And here's why. Because in John, it says that at Bethesda, there were five colonnades. Five colonnades. It says in this book, there are five. And they said, well, we've only found two. And because there's only two and there's not five, you can go ahead and throw your Bible out and you can throw everything else out about your faith. Because the truth is, if you can't trust that one detail, then you can't trust anything else that's in this book. Abandon your faith. And they watched generation after generation of students walk away from their faith because only two columns were found. Fast forward 30, 40 years, and they finally convinced some houses that were ancestral homes to sell their homes so they could dig a little deeper. And guess what they found? One, two, three more colonnades. Three plus two equals five. You see, they dug a little bit deeper, and they found that the Bible was actually accurate to the letter. Five colonnades, pool of Bethesda. You see, each time we dig, each time we look, each time we find, here's the point of this, here's why. I don't think God has a problem with your doubts. 
I don't think he's scared of your doubts. In fact, I think he loves the fact that we've got a whole bunch of scientists, a whole bunch of archaeologists, a whole bunch of people out there. We're going to dig and we're going to disprove God. And God's like, bring it on. Dig all you want. Look as far as you want to look because here's what you're going to find. This place was created with order and it was created by my word. And the more you dig, the more you will find my word, my power, my life. And then you can believe. And when you believe, you can live a life that reflects that. He says, look for me. Find me. I want to give you something that's interesting. Um, a lot of people ask what happened to Thomas, doubting Thomas. Here's what church history tells us. Thomas left Israel after his encounter with Jesus. He went to a place that we now know as India, and there he encountered a whole bunch of Hindus, people that had a very different belief system, and there Thomas preached and taught, and thousands upon thousands of Hindus turned their lives to Jesus. In fact, it got so bad, the amount of people that were turning to Jesus, that some Hindu priests actually murdered Thomas because they got tired of him preaching the good news of Jesus. See, Thomas, who was a doubter, was willing to die for Jesus. The guy who said, I will never believe unless I touch him, unless I see him with my own eyes, I will never believe the same guy that was the doubter was the one that said, not only will I believe, but I will die for that belief, and I will give my life to preach and proclaim that truth. You see, the question that I have for you today isn't, will you die for Jesus? Because you know, we live in a really blessed time. Like, I'm, I'm standing on a stage in front of just around a thousand people online, and we'll do this a couple more times this weekend. And, and I'm not worried that, that, that today, like the government's gonna come here and shut me down for preaching what I believe is true. I don't have to worry about that. Many of you can leave this place today, and if someone said, are you a Christian, you could look at them and go, yeah, what of it? And nothing's gonna happen to you. We're not asking you right now in this season and where we live and where we are because we have freedoms. If you'll die for Jesus, I'm just asking, does your belief lead you to a place where you'll live for him? That you'll give your life for him? that you'll live out each and every single day, not, not a casual faith, not one that's convenient, but one that's committed, will you live out of faith? And if you're struggling to figure out what you believe, can I just challenge you? Do the journey, go looking and see what you find, because here's what I think you'll find. The more you dig, the more you will find that there's a God in heaven that loves you, sent his son to die for you, and he came to give you a life, and a life filled with hope. Here's the end of the verse, last verse. Jesus said to him, said to Thomas, have you believed because you've seen? Man, do you believe because you've seen me? And then he says this, and I love this. Uh, Jesus is filled with these, like, these strange things he, where he like, gives out blessing. He says there's something, there's a blessing found here. Here's what he says. He says, blessed are you. He said, you want a blessing? You want to find that, what it is to live a blessed life? He said, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He says, even if you haven't seen, you know why I think there's a blessing in it? I think there's a blessing in it because it requires you to do the work and it requires you to make the faith your own. I think sometimes we can come to church and we can have a faith that belongs to our parents. We can come to church and we can have a faith that belongs to our friends. We can come and we can come to church and have a faith that belongs to our pastor. We can say, well, I'll just tag on to that faith. And here's the reality, you can't tag on to someone else's faith. It's gotta be your faith. You gotta decide that you believe it, that you trust it. It's gotta move from a head knowledge to a heart knowledge. It's gotta come something that changes you so much that you live as if you believe it. And he says, listen, there's a blessing found and if you do the work, and you get to that belief, he says, the blessing is you'll have a stronger faith than anybody else because to see something makes it easy to believe. But if you can't see it, you gotta do the work to believe it. And when you do that work, it'll actually give you a stronger faith and a stronger foundation than all the others. He said, that's the blessing. So here's what I wanna do. With every head bowed, every eye closed in this place, the challenge I have for you today is some of you are here today and you're Christians, but maybe you, at the beginning of this message, you looked and you said, you know, I, I've identified something about myself. I'm, I'm a casual Christian. You know, I'm, I'm a convenient Christian. My challenge today is don't stay in that place, but move to a place of commitment. Do the work. Push through the doubts. Look and find. See Jesus. And as you see him, 
as you get close to him, my hope is that you'd respond the way that Thomas did, my Lord and my God. If you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus, I wanna invite you to start a relationship with him today. The Bible says it's actually really easy because God did all the work on the cross for you. It says that you just have to believe that God sent his son Jesus, that he lived, that he died, and that he rose again. You put your faith and trust in that. He says, then I'll save you. You just have to confess it. And so right now, if you want that, you just pray. You simply say, God, thank you for your son Jesus. Thank you for his life, his death, and his resurrection. I place my trust, my faith, my hope in Jesus as my Lord. And in that moment, as you engage that faith, as you believe, God says, I will save you instantly in that moment. His power, his grace, his mercy is poured out on you. God, thank you for those that are saying yes to you in this moment, that responded to you in faith. God, I pray that right now you'd send your spirit to lead, to guide, empower them. Help them to live for you. God, I pray for those in this room that, that maybe they, they know you, but they, they don't have a committed belief in you, that, that today maybe they would take one step closer. That God, that you begin to increase their faith, and as you increase their faith, you increase their belief. That God, it would begin to change the way that they live as they follow you. God, we love you, we thank you, we praise you, we pray this in your precious name. And the church said, amen. We hope this message challenged you, encouraged you, and most of all, brought you closer to a loving God who wants nothing but the best for you. If you have any questions about taking next steps in your faith journey, simply text NEXT to 309-777-0677. Everyone has a next step, and here at Vail, we would love to walk alongside you. If this message was impactful to you, we encourage you to share it. To stay connected to everything Vail Church, feel free to subscribe, visit our website at vail.church, and follow our socials on Instagram and Facebook. Lastly, for all of those who call Vail Church home, let's remember, worship faithfully, connect intentionally, give generously, and serve sacrificially. We'll see you next week.